Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Streets of Rage 2, a side-scrolling beat-em-up game released in 1992 for the Sega Mega Drive and Genesis, published by Sega and developed by several companies, including Ancient, Shout Design Works, M&M Software, and HIC. We will be talking about that game in just a minute, but first, as is customary, a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 22. I would love to hear what you guys think about how things are going, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear what you're thinking. So, there are a couple of ways you can reach out to me. You can either send me an email at classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, or I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So, if anybody feels so inclined to reach out, provide suggestions, comments, feedback, or just talk classic or just gaming in general and technology, I'd love to hear from you because I love talking about that kind of stuff. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I do just want to talk very briefly about the anatomy of an episode because for the most part, we follow the same exact structure for every one of our episodes. We always start by talking about history. What is the historical context of the game that we are discussing? And then we jump into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign numeric rankings or anything like that, but we do talk about every game from a few different perspectives. They are the graphics, how does the game look, sound and music, how does the game sound, the narrative and or story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does the game feel like to play today versus when it was released? And we do all that in order to reach a verdict. We want to determine how the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign every game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list, if a game is that darn good, if it is as good today as it ever has been, it reaches the pantheon of classic gaming. If a game is in the pantheon, you know it's a good time. It is a verifiable classic. You should play it. You should play it today. It doesn't matter who was released 20, 30 plus years ago. It doesn't matter. It is still amazing. Just beyond the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These are games where they don't quite reach Pantheon level. They are still darn good experiences, and I'd still highly recommend you give them a go, especially if you enjoy the genre or you have nostalgia for the game in question. You're almost guaranteed to have a good time. Beyond our golden oldies are our mediocre mentions. These are where we start getting into the games that I cannot fully recommend to the general population. Sure, if you have nostalgia for the title or you like the genre a lot, you may still have a good time, maybe, because a lot of these games have aged a bit or they may have had a couple of issues to begin with even when they were released. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot in good conscience recommend any of these games to anyone today. They just do not hold up. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Streets of Rage 2.
Streets of Rage 2 was a side-scrolling beat-em-up game released in 1992 for the Sega Genesis Mega Drive, published by Sega and developed by a bunch of different companies in collaboration. Before we can discuss Streets of Rage 2, however, we need to take a look at both the beat-em-up and fighting game markets of the early 90s. And to start, we're actually going to go back a little bit further, to 1987, when two incredibly influential games were released to the arcade market. Those were Double Dragon and Street Fighter. Double Dragon is a side-scrolling beat-em-up game developed by Technos Japan, which was itself a spiritual successor to a prior title that Technos Japan had created a year earlier in 1986. That game was known as Renegade, and it was one of the first side-scrolling beat-em-up titles that introduced urban settings with the player navigating the mean streets of a city with the intent of beating up gangs of bad guys in the hopes of eventually saving the day. Prior to Renegade, most beat-em-ups utilized settings that mimicked the very traditional kung fu kinds of environments that were prevalent in martial arts movies, like karate dojos or picturesque mountaintops and serene meditation grottos. Renegade switched things up by introducing a more urban city-based setting where gang warfare, rather than honor-driven kung fu, was the name of the game. Double Dragon would evolve and improve upon the formula originally introduced by Renegade, and would include a very similar setting based on urban gang fighting whereby you, the player, had to clean up the city's streets in the hopes of saving your kidnapped girlfriend. Along the way, you'd punch, kick, and throw your way through an ever-increasing cast of enemy characters. Beyond that, Double Dragon introduced several features to the beat-em-up genre that had never been attempted before, including the ability to disarm an enemy and then use his own weapon against them. So that was one where anybody who's played a modern or semi-modern beat-em-up, and I guess in this context, anybody who's played a beat-em-up since around 1990... Weapons are pretty pervasive in those games, and a lot of times you'll be fighting and an enemy will come from off the screen with a pipe or a sword or a knife or something else, and if you attack them enough and knock them down, you could pick their weapon up and beat them senseless with it before Double Dragon. That didn't exist, so that was a major innovation that Double Dragon had pushed. One of the other innovations that Double Dragon included in its game was the fact that there were cutscenes in between levels, which served to add a more cinematic feel to the game. But those weren't the most important innovations. Perhaps the most important innovation for Double Dragon, or that Double Dragon introduced, was the introduction of multiplayer combat. That's right, Double Dragon was the first beat-em-up game that enabled cooperative gameplay. Before Double Dragon, every beat-em-up was simply a one player affair. Now think about that for a second. How much more fun is it to play beat-em-ups with a buddy? Without Double Dragon and before Double Dragon, we never knew the joy. Without Double Dragon, we may have never known that joy. Beat-em-ups are much more fun when you have a buddy kicking butt with you. Uh, so without that, before Double Dragon, it just didn't exist. So absolutely an incredibly innovative title that really served to introduce a bunch of new things to the genre. Now, I will say, the reasoning behind the multiplayer design decision was largely a capitalistic thing. It's not like they were just looking at the game design and thought, hey, you know what would make this a lot more fun? Add an extra player. They were thinking that, well, they'd make more money if two people were playing in an arcade at the same time as opposed to one, because 
When you have two people playing the same game, they're pumping double the quarters in there, presumably, and you're making more money. Regardless, and despite that, the impact of adding multiplayer would be incredibly influential. Nearly every beat-em-up title from this point on would include cooperative multiplayer as a base feature of the game. It's expected now. If you got a beat-em-up title and it wasn't multiplayer, ooh, I don't even know. I don't even know if there has been a beat-em-up title in recent years that, or in the last 20, 30 years that hasn't had multiplayer. If there has been, let me know because that'd be a little strange. I can't remember or I can't think of any off the top of my head. Now, beyond those innovations, though, Double Dragon would go on to spawn numerous sequels itself and would influence countless games to follow. More on that in a few minutes. So we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to start talking about another incredibly important title that was also released in 1987, which was the original Street Fighter game, which was published by Capcom and conceptualized by Takashi Nishiyama, who had previously worked on Kung Fu Master, which was itself an early beat-em-up title from 1984. That was actually the immediate predecessor to Renegades. You can see all of these things are starting to fit together a little bit. Now, Kung Fu Master was a title that involved side-scrolling combat, and at the end of each level, the player would be expected to defeat a boss of some kind. After working on that title, Nishiyama had an idea. What if the boss fights could be made the core mechanic of a game? Rather than having to fight through a level and then reach some sort of boss encounter, what if the game itself was simply a series of boss fights? That concept would eventually evolve into Street Fighter, which was one of the earlier examples of a one-on-one versus fighting game. So both Double Dragon and Street Fighter would serve as an influence for future arcade titles, with the 1989 classic beat-em-up Final Fight being the direct result of both games. Originally intended to be a direct sequel to Street Fighter, Final Fight would pivot during its development due to the development team's desire to create an experience more similar to Double Dragon. Upon its release in the arcades, Final Fight quickly became one of the most popular titles for the next couple years. And if anybody would like to learn more about Final Fight specifically, take a listen to episode number eight, where we talk exclusively about the game and how it came into existence. Anyway, it is not my intent for this episode to give an entire historical account of the beat-em-up genre, but the context here is important. The reason being that the creation of Double Dragon and Final Fight would eventually inspire the creation of a brand new fighting beat-em-up series at Sega. One day, a young designer named Noriyoshi Oba was beginning to think about what his next game was going to be. He had just recently completed work on Revenge of Shinobi, which was a side-scrolling action title that was developed as a feature showcase for the recently released Sega Genesis console. In that title, the player would control a ninja out for revenge, traversing multiple levels in order to eventually defeat the criminal organization that killed your master and kidnapped your bride. Upon its release, the game would be praised for its gameplay, graphics, level design, and music, which had been composed by a relatively new Sega employee named Yuzo Koshiro. While Koshiro began his Sega career as a composer, his success working on Revenge of Shinobi presented him with an opportunity. He had a meeting with one of the managers on the title and suggested that he could do more than just compose music for games. He believed he could develop games himself. As a result of that discussion, Koshiro was given an opportunity to lead the development of the Game Gear port for the original Sonic the Hedgehog. To complete that work, he had to find a new company, or he actually founded a new company along with his sister, Ayano Koshiro, and his mother. That new company would be named Ancient, 
and work soon began on porting Sonic the Hedgehog to the Game Gear. Now, you might be asking, why did Kashiro need to create a new company simply to work on the game? The answer to that lies in how Sega was structured at the time. Due to company policy, Sega couldn't offer a contract for a game to a single individual. They could only contract work with other companies. As a result, Kashiro had to create a new company in order to work on the title. Just a little interesting bit of Sega bureaucracy from the time. As work continued on the Game Gear port for Sonic the Hedgehog, Sega asked Kashiro to also port Sonic to the Sega Master System, the thought being that both the Game Gear and Master System were 8-bit consoles, and the work done on one should be able to translate into a game for the other. While Kashiro didn't have any direct development experience himself, he did hire a talented programmer into the company to work on both efforts. The team quickly determined that a true 16-bit port to 8-bit hardware was going to be pretty much impossible, so they ended up recreating the essence of Sonic, albeit within the 8-bit limitations of each of those consoles. The end result was an extremely impressive demonstration of Ancient's talent, with the 8-bit iterations of Sonic the Hedgehog being universally praised for their quality, especially considering that its influence was a 16-bit, much more advanced game. With that success, Koshiro developed an even stronger working relationship with Sega. At the same time, Noriyoshi Oba had enjoyed working with Koshiro during their time spent creating Revenge of Shinobi, and eventually came to him with a new idea for a game. Inspired by both Double Dragon and Final Fight, Oba wanted to create a street fighting game, and he wanted Koshiro to compose the music. That street fighting game would eventually become the very first Streets of Rage title. Streets of Rage would take elements of various beat-em-up titles of the time, presenting a multiplayer fighting experience where each player could select from one of three characters, each of which had different attributes and movesets. As players worked their way through the game's eight levels, they would beat up various bad guys, utilize the environments and weapons to their advantage, and would eventually save the day, all while listening to a driving techno soundtrack that served to amp up the hard-hitting action even more. Streets of Rage would release on the Sega Genesis in 1991 and was an unmitigated success. It quickly became one of the best-selling Genesis titles of 1992 and would be universally acclaimed for its graphics, gameplay, and music. Many critics claim that Streets of Rage was one of the best side-scrolling fighting games ever created, with several saying that the combination of gameplay, graphics, and sound even eclipsed the venerable final fight. While Streets of Rage was garnering attention for the Sega Genesis, a brand new arcade fighting title had come out earlier in the year that was quickly changing the face of the one-on-one versus fighting game genre. That title was Street Fighter 2. Now, Street Fighter 2 was the successor to the original 1987 Street Fighter arcade title and likely represents one of the most dramatic improvements by a sequel in the history of gaming. While all of the core elements of the game were present in the original Street Fighter, Street Fighter 2 improved upon nearly every aspect of the original, with large, highly detailed sprite-based graphics, a sizable roster of characters, all of whom had unique fighting styles and movesets, an incredibly impressive musical soundtrack with each stage featuring its own memorable theme and fast-paced gameplay that lent itself to incredibly competitive multiplayer matches. Street Fighter 2 had taken the world by storm. Before we continue, 
it is important to talk about console exclusivity and how it played a role in the early 90s console war. So, what is console exclusivity? Basically, what that means is that different console manufacturers, in an effort to be more competitive, would often try to acquire exclusive titles for their consoles. First-party developers, meaning those companies with direct relationships with a given company, would serve as one form of exclusivity. So as an example, you're probably not going to see Nintendo developing a whole heck of a lot of Nintendo titles for the PlayStation, just as an example. Similarly, uh, Sony with Naughty Dog. Naughty Dog is one of their first-party developers, I believe. Naughty Dog's not going to make a game for another competitor. They're just going to make their games for Sony's for Sony systems. So first-party developers almost always are console-exclusive. In the early 90s, there was also a significant focus in trying to woo third-party developers to a given console maker's ecosystem. Nowadays, many third-party titles come out on nearly every platform available, but that wasn't the case in the early 90s. In Street Fighter II, there was a little bit of a fight over this one, trying to get that title to one of the home consoles. It was an incredibly popular arcade title, and it represented a significant potential competitive advantage for any console maker that could earn the rights to a port of the game. As you might imagine, both Nintendo and Sega were extremely interested. But it was Nintendo that won the bid for the title, with Sega being left out in the cold. That left Sega at a significant competitive disadvantage, as Nintendo had brokered a deal to bring one of the hottest arcade titles of the time to their home console. As a result of that setback, Sega wanted to get even. Thinking about how to possibly combat the clout of Street Fighter II on the Super Nintendo, Sega executives looked across their portfolio to figure out how they could create their own street fighting title to compete. Remembering the success of the Kashiro family company Ancient with porting Sonic the Hedgehog to both the Game Gear and the Sega Master System, as well as Yuzo Kashiro's prior work in composing the music for both Revenge of Shinobi and Streets of Rage, Sega came to Kashiro with a proposition. They wanted to create a game to compete with Street Fighter 2, and they wanted Ancient to be the company that would lead that charge. And they wanted the game developed in just six months in order to release during the holiday season. That overarching direction would eventually lead to the creation of Streets of Rage 2. The story behind the development of Streets of Rage 2 is interesting in its own right and represents an early example of a truly collaborative effort across several different companies, each of which had their own strengths. Once Ancient was given the contract to develop the title, the brother-sister team of Yuzo and Ayano Kashiro had to decide how to divvy up the work on the title. They had limited programming and art and animation experience in-house, so they decided to outsource a portion of that work to other companies that had a greater degree of expertise, while Ayana Koshiro would serve as a core designer and art director for the title. Yuzu would serve as both a sounding board for her ideas, as well as the composer for the game. Collaborating with these external companies turned out to be both a blessing and a curse, as the extra expertise brought to the development process was welcome, but it was also challenging to coordinate. Back in the early 90s, we didn't have many electronic means of exchanging ideas. It's not like we could send emails at the time. We were kind of dependent on fax if we wanted to send something, using the traditional uh, trusty old fax machine. 
So as an example, if you were working with a company, just like what was happening here, exchanging notes about art designs when not physically co-located in the same location would prove to be a pretty difficult prospect. The only way to easily collaborate on designs would be to fax mock-ups back and forth. It wasn't a deal breaker, but it was something that required additional attention to get right. Nowadays, you simply attach an image file or a, uh, a Photoshop file or whatever the program is to an email, you send it, and you can get instantaneous feedback. Not so much in the early 90s. Early on, work focused on how to iterate on the original Streets of Rage while at the same time integrating elements of Street Fighter 2 as requested by Sega's leadership. To that end, the team at Ancient was given a Street Fighter 2 arcade cabinet for the purpose of understanding and dissecting its core gameplay mechanics, including how the combo and move system worked, the timing of inputs, and the overall feel of the fighting experience. Now, both Yuzo and Ayano Kashiro were huge fans of the title, so being asked to play the game for work was pretty much a dream job. I don't think they were they had too much issue or too many issues having to play a game for work. So while they played Street Fighter 2 anytime they could, they also began to think about the overall design for the new title. In the original Streets of Rage, the player could choose between one of three characters, but two of those characters were very traditional brawler archetypes with a similar moveset. So Ayano decided that for the sequel, they needed to create a more varied playing experience. That resulted in the removal of one of the original Streets of Rage characters, Adam, to be replaced by two newcomers to the series, a heavy wrestling kind of fighter named Max, and a quick, smaller character focused on combo gameplay named Skate. These two new characters joined original game characters Axel, who was a typical brawler type, and Blaze, who was an acrobatic female character to create a four-person roster that players could choose between. Not content to just have four differently styled characters, Ayano began working on how to differentiate the characters between each other. Each character would be assigned a ranking across several different attributes, like stamina, speed, and power. Complementing those attributes would be the combat system, which would represent one of the most innovative features in the entire game. So we have to take a step back right now and talk about typical beat-em-up gameplay. Basically, most beat-em-ups have relatively simple controls. Sometimes they only have a couple buttons that you need to use in addition to your joystick. Use your joystick to move around. A lot of times you have a punch and a kick button, sometimes a jump button. Um, sometimes the punch and the kicks just kind of alternate by the using the same button depending on what part of the combo you are doing. You can also initiate holds and throws and jumping around and pick up items and levels with weapons like we were talking about before with Double Dragon innovating around some of those weapon-based ideas. So there are a certain amount of things. There's a pretty good amount of actual mechanics in beat-em-up games, but generally speaking, the fighting gameplay itself is fairly straightforward. It's not like you're entering in multiple button inputs to uh, do different moves. You're basically moving around you're pressing the punch or the kick button multiple times, which then in the game world will translate into different moves or combos. So maybe if you press the button four times in a row, your character might do a left, a right, a knee, and then a big uppercut or something like that. It's not like you're defining what, what moves you're doing. That's just part of the overall combo sequence that the game designers have programmed in for when you press that button four times. You're not doing Street Fighter kinds of combos where you have to go like back, forward, 
and a button and it does something. That's just not the way beat-em-up games are designed. Streets of Rage 2, however, would create a brand new fighting system that was inspired by Street Fighter 2. Rather than have a limited set of punches, kicks, and throws at your disposal, Ayano Kashiro would design a combo-based system whereby different combinations of button presses and directions on the gamepad would result in different moves being performed. Multiple throws could come from different positions, such as when you're behind versus in front of an enemy, and that would all be integrated into the game, as well as different throws for when you're jumping versus standing still. If you pressed your punch and kick button multiple times consecutively, you would result in a chain of different combinations, each of which came with different damage values. Various jumping attacks were also created, with the type of attack being influenced by the direction you're pressing on the gamepad while special double dash attacks would provide an additional move per character to get out of difficult situations. You'd also have special attacks that you could perform on enemies behind you, and rounding out the experience was a set of special attacks that were both devastating as well as a bit risky as they take a little bit of life from you whenever they were used. This made the act of playing the game feel more like playing a versus fighting title as opposed to a simple straightforward beat-em-up with a limited control scheme. There were other innovations for Streets of Rage 2 as well, such as the ability to scroll screens diagonally versus simply side-to-side movement, which was designed to impress players who wouldn't expect such a capability to be included in a Genesis title. Similarly, the team had to work some magic to get the graphics to maintain a certain level of quality, given some of the restrictions of the Sega Genesis hardware. And I want to talk about two major restrictions in terms of graphics that the team needed to address They were limited color palettes and realistic transparencies. So let's look at color palettes first. The Sega Genesis hardware effectively had the ability to switch between four different sets of 16 color palettes in order to compose its scenes. And those palettes were shared between background tiles and foreground characters. What that basically meant was that when a pixel was going to be colored in, The game designer had to first select a palette to use and then select one of 16 colors that were included in that palette. As you might imagine, this could create a little bit of a restrictive kind of setup. To address that issue, the team, led by Ayano Kishiro, took great effort to intelligently manage the colors and palettes available to them, organizing the colors in such a way that they could easily recolor and reskin enemies, which, as many may know, is kind of a staple of the beat-em-up genre, where as you move through the game, you start fighting different enemies, and you look at them, and you're like, oh, well, that's the same exact model, just a different jacket color or something like that. That's pretty much something that they use in most beat-em-up games. In any event, the team was able to organize the colors in such a way that allowed them to do that, to recolor those enemies, while at the same time providing enough flexibility to create dynamic background images that created a sense of realism, albeit with a relatively limited set of colors. Through focused art design, the team was able to create the appearance of reflections, perspective, and advanced lighting, all while working within the constraints of the Genesis hardware. To be clear, none of these artistic elements actually were able to be processed by the Sega Genesis. It's not like it had the ability to actually render a reflection. This was all accomplished via clever artistic tricks. Similarly, the Genesis could not represent transparency with its hardware, 
which is an area that the Super Nintendo had it beat because the Super Nintendo had hardware-supported transparency effects. The Genesis did not. So in order to accomplish the same feat, the team looked at Sonic the Hedgehog, and one of its more impressive graphical tricks was to use a technique called dithering, which is a combination of different colors to simulate a color that doesn't actually exist within a game's palette. Think about taking a couple of colors and putting them next to each other sort of pixel by pixel so that you may put like red and blue next to each other and it might look more purple even though the color purple may not be part of the actual color palette optically there's kind of a little bit of a trick where with red and blue next to each other it kind of looks purplish when you look at it that's what dithering is kind of combining those colors to create a new color that doesn't really exist in the games or in the hardware's palettes Uh, so in sonic dithering was used to create the illusion of transparency And that same technique was used in Streets of Rage 2. Having overcome those hurdles, and with gameplay mechanics and art design coming together, we can now turn our attention to music, which was firmly Yuzo Koshiro's responsibility. Recall that Koshiro was a composer by trade and had previously composed the music for the original Streets of Rage title. For Streets of Rage 2, he wanted to create an auditory experience that would far exceed his prior efforts. Koshiro, at the time, had been a fan of a relatively new style of music known as techno, which itself had multiple sub-styles that branched off from the core style. Techno was known for the rhythm of its beats, coupled with more synthesis-driven, electronic-sounding instrumentation. For Streets of Rage 2, Koshiro wanted to utilize that style for the soundtrack. In order to accomplish that feat, he utilized a music programming language that he wrote along with FM synthesis techniques to create a sound that many people would describe as feeling more at place in a nightclub versus a video game. In other words, the music was so widely revered and loved that it was hard to believe it was composed for a video game. Eventually, all of the elements of the title would come together, and Streets of Rage 2 would release on the Sega Genesis just before Christmas in 1992. The team had met their six-month deadline just in the nick of time. Upon release, it was universally praised by both critics and gamers alike. Reviewers claim that Streets of Rage 2 eclipsed both Double Dragon and Final Fight in nearly all areas, from graphics to gameplay to the hard-hitting techno soundtrack that many would cite as one of the finest 16-bit soundtracks to ever be created. Various media outlets awarded Streets of Rage 2 with year-end accolades for best game, best fighting game, and best music. It would remain on the top-selling Sega Genesis games list for months following its release. To put it mildly, Streets of Rage 2 was a huge success. And that's not to say that everything was 100% perfect with the game, though. There was one particular innovation which, in retrospect, didn't really pan out. And that was the integration with the Sega Activator peripheral. Some of you are probably asking, what the heck is a Sega Activator? Now, to answer that question, we have to talk briefly about the console peripheral market in the 8 and 16-bit eras of gaming, and even beyond, to a degree. As with consoles and games of the time themselves, the peripheral market was rife with experimentation in different control schemes, 
and they were oftentimes marketed as a way to immerse yourself even further into the game world. One of the big ones for the original NES was the Power Glove, which I actually did own a Power Glove, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. It didn't really work all that well, but I thought it was really cool. It was also featured in the movie The Wizard, which was basically itself a huge marketing thing for for Nintendo. Anyway, there were a lot of peripherals out there. The Sega Activator was one of those products. It was effectively a large plastic ring that would sit on the floor and the player would stand in the middle of it. Infrared beams would emanate from each side of the ring, and by moving your feet or hands over those beams, the intent was that the game would respond accordingly. It was an early form of full-body motion control, incredibly innovative, very similar to what the Xbox Kinect would try to popularize years later. Streets of Rage 2, being a beat-em-up game, seemed tailor-made for a peripheral where you could use your feet and fists to beat up enemies. There was only one problem. The Sega Activator was, was just not good. It was not a good peripheral, and it would often fail to register your inputs. It was so bad that production ceased just a few months after its original release. Streets of Rage 2 owns the inauspicious claim of being one of the few games that actively supported the peripheral. Despite that one misstep, though, Streets of Rage as a series would continue to have a legacy, with additional sequels releasing over the years. In fact, Streets of Rage 4, which is a modern retro-inspired title, was just released a couple years ago in 2020, which itself would receive praise from critics and gamers alike. Streets of Rage 2 would be ported to both the Game Gear and Master System, similar to Sonic the Hedgehog before it. Also similar to Sonic, it would be downgraded when you move to each of those other platforms, with lower quality graphics and one fewer character to select from. The game would further go on to be re-released in a number of Sega compilation titles over the years, ensuring that the game remained relevant in gaming culture. Regardless of when or in which iteration you may have played Streets of Rage 2, I'd wager that you likely have fond memories of the experience. This was a game that was inspired by both beat-em-up classics as well as fighting game royalty, and it deftly blended the two to create something that was truly unique. Streets of Rage 2 is widely considered to be one of the best games ever made, a true classic that transcends its genre to become something even greater. It remains to this day a significant part of gaming history, and its virtues continue to be praised even 30 years after its release. This is one of those rare experiences that will almost certainly be remembered forever. We are now going to shift to talk about how it feels to play Streets of Rage 2 today. Streets of Rage 2, like we were talking about, is a side-scrolling beat-em-up game. And let's talk through each of the aspects of the title, because I find them interesting. And it's always interesting to see how different companies implement different aspects of a traditional kind of genre. So we've talked before that a lot of beat-em-up titles have multiple characters that you can select between, some of which have different movesets or things like that. 
Streets of Rage 2 was no different. It would have four characters that you could choose between, each of which had different ratings across a few different attributes, those being power, speed, technique, jump, and stamina. And each of the fighters would have different fighting styles, strengths, and weaknesses. So we'll go through each of the characters just briefly. We had Max. He was a big, bad wrestler type. He was like the oversized muscle guy where all of his moves did significant damage. In fact, I believe his throw, one of his throws or one of his uh, hold moves where you jump up and kind of do a jumping atomic drop uh, is one of the, if not the strongest, most powerful move in the game that could pretty much decimate anybody if you can get yourself in the right position to actually execute that maneuver. So he's incredibly powerful. He also, because he is a wrestler, is one of the few char- one of the few characters, if not the only character, that could not be countered by one of the bosses later in the game because that boss is also a wrestler. So I thought it was interesting that even some of the some of the enemy interactions with different characters would be unique based on which character you chose. So Max, very powerful guy, very much the powerhouse of the group. Moving on to Axel, he is pretty much a standard fighter. He's one of the characters that appeared in the original Streets of Rage. So he's a very traditional kind of martial artist kind of guy. He's kind of agile. He's kind of balanced across the board. Uh, you know, not too, not excessively fast, not excessively strong, not weak. Just kind of right smack dab in the middle. He's the guy that you want to pick if you want somebody that's pretty much just a standard kind of fighter. The one thing I will say, though, and we will talk about this a little bit later, his double dash move, which is this uppercut, rising uppercut kind of thing, is the most overpowered broken move in the game. And we're going to talk about that, too. So while his stats may not be particularly impressive in any given area, his double dash move is it's almost almost borderline broken. Moving on to Blaze, she's another character that comes forward from Streets of Rage, the original game. She is a little bit more agile than Axel. She is definitely a martial artist kind of character, a little bit faster than what he was, but kind of the same mold overall. Axel and Blaze both have a very similar mold to them in that they're very martial arts kind of in the middle based, Blaze being a little bit faster than Axel, Axel being a little bit stronger than Blaze. And then finally, we get to Skate, who is, I would say, probably the most skill-driven character out of the four that you could pick from Streets of Rage 2. So Skate was new. He did not appear in Streets of Rage 1. And he is a very small, speedy, combo-driven fighter. So he was one of those guys that you definitely need some skill in order to pull off his combos and avoid too much damage because he wasn't particularly strong. He's incredibly fast, the fastest character in the game and would rely solely on combos and basically moving around the screen very quickly to get from enemy to enemy and try to avoid damage, which some of the other characters could take a lot more damage than what skate could. That's why I say skate is probably the highest skill level character in the game. If you want to be challenged, you're probably going to pick skate because he is uh, he's a bit more difficult to play and actually be successful with. So those characters, regardless of who you would pick or who your buddy would pick, you would have to move through eight levels in the game. 
each of which had a boss, or in some instances, multiple bosses, that you would have to fight at the end before you would move on to the next level. And very similar to other beat-em-up kind of titles, bosses that you might fight in early levels will eventually return as regular enemies in later levels. That's pretty much a staple of the genre. As far as levels were concerned, there were a lot of different environments. They ranged from city streets to bars to arcades to amusement parks to skyscrapers. There was an incredible variety of environments, and a lot of the stages had multiple sub-levels. So even though you may have, maybe on level one, let's say, you might move from the streets into a bar and then move into the, the back alley of the bar, all in that one stage, but the environments would shift and you would kind of do a little mini load into the next area or sub-level of the stage. It was all very well done and nicely put together. And I really enjoyed how the sub-levels would, in some cases, flow from one into another. And this actually happens early in the game, a prime example of this. When you're in stage one, you fight through the streets, you eventually beat a big bad guy outside of a bar, you go into a bar. As you're fighting through the bar, as you get near the end of the bar, you see a bartender hanging out behind the uh, counter, and you start fighting with another enemy. And, And while you start fighting with that enemy, you see the bartender run off to the side of the screen. You don't think anything of it, because whatever, I guess they're trying to get away from the fight that's happening. Well, it turns out, no, they weren't. They actually, as you get out of the bar and you go into the back alley, they are then the boss character that you have to fight for that particular stage. And I just thought that was an awesome little detail where you had you had kind of this environment where you were fighting through the the bartender on one scene becomes the bad boss of the next and it was all done seamlessly and if you weren't paying attention you may have even missed that detail because it's not like the game called it out it was all background animation background information but something that just lent itself or added to the overall experience, the world, the environment of the game, which I thought was just really well done. And I'm sure there are other examples, too, that I probably missed as well as I was playing through it. But that first one, that first stage, that was definitely one of those things that when I saw that happen, I was like, oh, okay, they're um, they're doing something different here. And, and I kind of like it. And I wanted to see where it would go. Now, Streets of Rage 2 had a significant number of enemies. They all had different fighting styles, and there was some recoloring against different color palettes like we were talking about before. But even so, take away those recolored or reskinned enemies, there were still a lot of different enemies in this game, a large number of unique fighting styles and unique enemies to fight. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting is that there were a ton of of enemies that could appear on the screen at any one time. If we take a look back at some other beat-em-ups, especially ones that originated in the arcade, a lot of times the arcade systems would be able to have a lot more characters on screen at once because the hardware was more powerful. They were able to to have a lot more processing power to, to control the artificial intelligence and the animations and everything else that goes along with all those other characters. When those arcade machines would get ported to the home, 
a lot of times you couldn't have that many characters on the screen at one time. We saw that very clearly when we talked about Final Fight earlier on in the podcast, not just this episode, but I'm talking about the Final Fight specific episode where the arcade could have something like 10-ish enemy characters on screen at once. And when you got onto the Super Nintendo, it could only have like four or something like that. So a lot of times you had to have some compromises. Streets of Rage 2 was not an arcade experience. It was designed solely for the home consoles, for the Sega Genesis. And as a result, the team was able to optimize the experience and have a significant number of enemies on screen at one time, far exceeding the four or five enemies that you'd be able to see when playing Final Fight on the Super Nintendo. Streets of Rage 2, I didn't do an exact count, but just thinking through it, there were scenes where there were at least seven or eight enemy characters on the screen at once, all very large sprite characters too, with significant detail. So kudos to the team for being able to do that. Now, as you work your way through the game, or when you start the game, you can choose between one of several difficulties. And very traditional, easy, normal, hard kind of thing. There is a cheat that you can open up additional difficulties. And I believe if you beat the game on a certain difficulty, you unlock some ridiculously hard difficulty. And the name is escaping me right now because I am not one of those guys that that goes through the game to play it at the absolute hardest difficulty it could be. I freely admit that I beat the game on normal and I had no desire to go through it again at a harder difficulty because normal was hard enough for me as it was. But there are other difficulties out there for anybody who may be so inclined to try them out. Uh, the option screen itself for Streets of Rage 2 is actually pretty customizable. You could customize the experience for pretty much anything you wanted. You can change the difficulty like we were just talking about. You could also change the number of lives. The base difficulty is normal and the base number of lives is three, but you have the ability to adjust those to your liking to really tailor the experience to your overall skill level or the desire to which you want to get beaten repeatedly. So you do have those options available to you when you start up a new game. Now, as you're working your way through the game, there are some extra lives that are scattered around different levels. Some of them are very well hidden, and I don't know that anybody would have been able to find them short of just kind of randomly pressing a button in a scene or in a part of a scene where you literally can't even see the power-up, but it's hidden behind an object. So there were a few of those scattered around. There were also very traditional item-based uh, things that were out there. You could destroy elements in the environment to pick up food or weapons or things like that. It was pretty much a very typical kind of item-driven fighting experience. There were pipes, there were swords, there were knives for the different weapon types. And there were uh, primarily for the food, there were apples and chickens. I can't remember if there was anything else. Apples would restore a smaller chunk of your hit points and chickens would restore all of your hit points. So definitely keep an eye out for those chickens because they refill your HP bar significantly. Well, actually in total. You'd also get an extra life, by the way, when you would hit certain point totals. So it would behoove you to continue to fight and try not to have to use a continue because the more points you got, the more chance you were getting an extra life. And continues, by the way, there are limited continues. So if you are playing the game like I did, which is admittedly with an emulator, but without save states, you will have to beat the game with only a limited number of continues, a limited number of lives, 
And let me tell you, even on normal, the game is pretty darn tough to get through. You really have to maximize the number of extra lives you can find in the overall levels and then also get pretty darn good at the gameplay because it gets pretty challenging. Now, I want to say that the combo and fighting system in the game that we talked about, this unique merge of traditional beat-em-up gameplay with Street Fighter 2S combos, is absolutely instrumental in surviving. You cannot beat this game if all you're going to be doing is the traditional punch, kick, jump, throw kind of beat-em-up gameplay. And we're going to talk more about that when we discuss controls and the overall difficulty of the experience later on. So just keep that in mind. We will be returning to that concept in a few minutes. The game also had a dual mode where you could actually fight against another player, just like in Street Fighter, but unfortunately, it wasn't really all that well developed outside of whatever your character's normal skills were. It wasn't like it was a totally different game It was just the ability to take two of the selectable characters, put them up against each other using their skill sets. Speaking of multiplayer, there was friendly fire in the game. So even though most of the multiplayer in the game was a cooperative experience other than that dual mode, you could potentially hit your uh, partner and take away some of their life or they could get caught in your move. You can get caught in their move. So it is very important that you coordinate your attacks, that you are careful with your screen spacing and where you are because you really don't want to kick the crap out of your buddy when you're really just trying to kick the crap out of the enemies that are surrounding you. Before we move on to the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to look at the back of the box because, as you guys know, I enjoy reading the back of the box for all of these games because I like to see how the companies marketed their materials in the event that you may not have known about the game or you may not have seen it in a magazine because back then there wasn't really the internet to go to. It's not like you're going to YouTube to watch gameplay videos and to see what it's all about. A lot of times you're in that store and you're kind of wondering, what do I want to buy today? You see the box, the box art looks cool. You turn it over, you read the back of the box, and that's what tells you whether you should buy it right now. So, for Streets of Rage 2, the back of the box says, Streets of Rage 2, original rumblers, Axel and Blaze, slam the asphalt with bigger, better, totally devastating attacks. Skull-crushing ex-wrestler Max Thunder joins up with earth-shattering body slams and spinning fist attacks. New Thrasher Skate slices punks with high-speed inline skate attacks and spinning jump kicks. Go Maniac with jaw-shattering, bone-busting punches, head-cracking jump kicks, and secret weapons. Gangs of dirt bikers dive into you from every side, smash them with a pipe as they speed by. 16 gigantic megs of compound fractures, all new moves, and more of them. Bust Knuckles with a friend in all-new two-player head-to-head mode. And then there are a few screenshots as well. So that is how Streets of Rage 2 would sell itself to you if you were in the store wondering what to buy today. Anyway, we're going to move on to some of the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start with the graphics. I gotta say, Streets of Rage 2 was a true graphical powerhouse for the Sega Genesis. It demonstrates an art style that is just as impressive today as it was back then. 
We mentioned it earlier, but all of the artistic tricks that the team put into place to make it feel like a better, deeper color palette and just a better, deeper set of graphics was just crazy. The, the palette swapping, I mean, you couldn't tell that there were limited colors in this game. Every scene looked like it had an insane amount of colors. It was incredibly detailed. The reflection tricks that they were able to build in without actually using true reflection, but just the way they stylized the environments and the ground where they would want reflections to potentially appear without actually doing a true graphical calculation of reflection looked awesome. Transparency worked really well. There was all sorts of varied lighting, especially areas where you were expected to look at it and think, oh yeah, we're on like a city street. The lighting was awesome. There were a huge number of enemies, large, very large sprite characters, very detail-oriented character models. The overall design for the game just had a significant amount of detail as well. Each of the environments that you would navigate felt alive and they flowed into each other. Everything had a sense of place. It was just a really well-designed game world. It was one of the better-looking 16-bit games. It was just phenomenal, and it looks amazing today. You can play this game, and nobody would say, oh, that's just a that's just an old title kind of thing. I mean, it's certainly a retro-styled title. Nobody would look at it and say, oh, yeah, look at those ray-traced graphics. But they would look at it, and they might say, Oh, that's that looks like a, a modern retro kind of title. The graphics are just good. The, well, you know what? They're beyond good. The graphics are great, and the visuals are just outstanding. I have absolutely no complaints here. I really enjoyed looking at the game. The animations, too, were awesome, and the animations are important in fighting games in particular because you really want to be able to feel like you're like you're throwing those punches or throwing those kicks and, and tossing the bad guys and swinging with your weapon Everything about the graphical or visual presentation of the game was phenomenal. Moving on to the sound and music, there is a reason that Yuzo Koshiro's soundtrack has been so widely and critically acclaimed. It is as good, if not better, than what you've heard it is. Every single track is hard-hitting with thumping techno rhythms and a beat that just makes you want to fight. It meshes so well with the environments and action on the screen, that it almost becomes a character in and of itself. It is that good. The sound effects are similarly excellent, with every thud, scream, punch, crunch, and slap being incredibly effective at drawing you into the game world. You feel every single swing, every single impact, and it sounds amazing. Moving on to the narrative and story. This game is set one year after the original Streets of Rage. The big bad guy, Mr. X, and the Syndicate are back, and they are seeking revenge for how badly they got their butts kicked in the first game. So they decide to kidnap Adam Hunter, who was one of the original game's characters, and you have to clean up the streets to rescue him. Now, you know, the story is pretty simple. But you know what? It's surprisingly effective. It is perfect for this style of game. It's not too much because a lot of times beat-em-up games, you don't want there to be a ton of story exposition. You're here to beat guys up. 
you don't need 15 minute mega cutscenes to set the stage. So I appreciate the fact that the story was tailored. There, there was still a story there. It was not non-existent. There was definitely a narrative. I enjoyed it. I thought it worked well within the confines of the game. It made sense within the game and what you were trying to do. And if you take a look and you think about the kind of martial arts movies or the action movies of the 80s into the early 90s, this kind of feels like one of those in that the story is very basic. It's very easy to understand. Person in trouble or person that you love or like is in trouble you've got to go save them. Like that is the story. That's pretty much the the crux of the narrative, but that's okay. It works. Uh, there were no real cutscenes in the game. So not only were there not really long cutscenes, there were pretty much no cutscenes other than the introduction and the end of the game, but that's okay. Like I was saying, not every game needs mammoth mega story exposition in every element of the title. This game had exactly what it needed from a story perspective. It worked and I enjoyed it. Now let's talk about the playability and controls. This is quite possibly the best controlling beat-em-up game that I have ever played. And I've played a lot of beat-em-up titles in arcades, on home consoles, even on computers, on emulators, on modern hardware, on original hardware. I have played a ton of beat-em-up titles. This is almost certainly the best feeling controlling beat-em-up title ever. There is a super in-depth combo and move system. We were talking about this before. This is not just a game where you hammer on the punch or the kick button and jump around and do some flying elbow drops and things like that. It's not one of those games. You actually have to give every single encounter some thought. You have the ability to chain together combos and moves and throws and Even if you get into a grapple with an enemy, you can reposition yourself from behind to the front, or at least certain characters can. I don't know that every single character has a move to move from back to front from a hold position, but certain characters do, which is awesome. You can do throwing attacks from the ground. You can jump and do a throwing attack. You can jump and do separate kinds of melee moves from in the air. The double dash attack, which for each character is different, but hugely effective, it is just a really in-depth combo system, and and just the act of playing the game makes you feel more in control of your character's movements and motions and actions than almost any other beat-em-up title that I have played. As a matter of fact, I cannot think of a beat-em-up title where I felt more in control of the specific actions that were taken. Every single character in the game is unique. Each character has different combos, but they do have very similar control schemes, which I think is a good thing in this context. It's not like you have to main a given character or you don't have to learn all of the different moves for different characters. There are some unique aspects to each character. As an example, a a very easy example, the double dash attack for each character is very different and is usable in different situations and effective in different situations depending on what character you're being. Some of the moves, like with Max, your double dash attack is you slide along the ground and lead with your feet. So it's kind of like a sliding kick kind of move. And that's meant not so much for damage, but to help Max move around the level faster because Max is a bigger guy, but he's also very slow. Axel, by contrast, doesn't get a whole lot of movement in his double dash move because 
he already has a fair amount of mobility. What his is, is a stationary uppercut kind of move, which is highly damaging, especially if you connect on multiple points of the given uppercut. And I keep teasing this, but we're going to talk about that uppercut. And <laughs> so trust me, we are going to talk about Axel's uppercut really, really soon. At the end of the day, though, even though each of the characters had a little bit of a different control scheme, still a relatively simple game. There's one button for a special move, one button for punches and kicks, and one for jumping. Yet with all of that simplicity, there is still depth and a lot of depth. And the combinations make the game insanely fun. You can really see how Street Fighter 2's combat served as an inspiration for the title. And I've got to say, the act of fighting tons of enemies at one time never gets old. It feels like you are a total stud walking around and just kicking the butts out of any, well, maybe not out of people, but you're kicking everybody's butts. And it is just awesome. The weapons in the game feel right. And I loved that some weapons can hit enemies on your backswing. And by the way, that was just a random thing the team added during one of their collaboration sessions. They basically said, hey, you know what would be cool is if you're, you're swinging this big weapon and as you, as you swing back, it could hit somebody behind you. So the team just went off, they coded it real quick, and they added it to the game, which I thought was awesome. That's one of those things that I love when there's that kind of collaboration because it often leads to bigger and better things. And this was just kind of a random thing that... I don't remember other games of the time having Streets of Rage 2 did, and it, it just was awesome. Uh, I did mention earlier that different characters can counter different enemies. So the specific example that I had given earlier was with Max. So he's a big wrestler type of guy. And when you eventually get to the boss of stage four, I think you fight uh, the ultimate warrior, or I guess more accurately, a knockoff of the ultimate warrior who, if you're playing any other character and you try to hit them too much, he will counter you into some unblockable attack and really ruin your day. If you're playing as Max, he can't counter you because you are a wrestler yourself, so he doesn't have that counter ability. I love the fact that they built that kind of thing into different characters to make them even more unique and even give a little bit of strategy around how you can utilize them for when you play through. Quite simply, Playability controls 100% amazing. So how did it feel? How, what is the overall feel of, of the game? I will say, I think I had more fun with this beat-em-up than nearly any other beat-em-up I've played. That includes Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Final Fight, Simpsons, X-Men, Punisher, Cadillacs and Dinosaur, and countless other games. This one exceeds them all. The trick here is that the game is presented as a simple interface. It's a simple, traditional beat-em-up, punch-kick, special move, jump-around kind of thing. But it is, in fact, surprisingly deep. The control scheme adds a ton of replayability, especially considering that the four characters you have control very differently and have different strengths and weaknesses. Each of the stages in the game are varied, and they are a joy to explore and play. The enemy variety in each of those stages makes the game interesting the entire way through. Solo play is fun, so I did play the game solo, and I had a blast. Multiplayer is way better, and, and I played this one through multiplayer as well for the purposes of this episode, and 
boy, is it just fun playing with another person. There's just something about co-oping in a game like this. Though I will say, friendly fire can sometimes add a little bit of frustration, especially when you accidentally grab your companion as opposed to the enemy standing right next to them. That being said, I do have a couple of critiques. I am not a huge fan of the whole you're a boss in stage one and then you're a common enemy in a later stage kind of thing. I know that pretty much every single beat-em-up title does that, but for me, it's not my favorite thing in the world. Some of the bosses are really hard, depending on which character you're being. Now, some characters will have a lot more difficulty than others, which brings me to my third critique, which is Axel's Uppercut. Axel's Uppercut is almost borderline broken. It is an effective counter to pretty much any single move in the game if you time it properly. So basically, you could almost spam Axel's double dash uppercut, and you have a pretty good chance of getting pretty far in the game, if not beating the game. One of the things that makes it so powerful is that even if the enemy is blocking, when you do your double dash uppercut right next to an enemy, you will make contact on multiple points, multiple points of the of the enemy's hitbox you're going to hit, which depletes their life regardless of them blocking. It, it does a good job of depleting their life if they're blocking. If they're not blocking, you are going to put them into a hurt locker. It is just, it is just going to be a massive amount of pain for them. And because there is no limitation on your double dash moves, it's not like the special attacks where you lose HP when you connect. You could pretty much use a double dash indefinitely. Axel's uppercut makes the game dramatically easier to complete. There's still, it's still difficult. I mean, it's still not a walk in the park. You still have to be careful. You still have to have to work your way with a bit of strategy through the different encounters. And especially when you get to certain bosses, you have to make sure you time the move correctly. It's not like you can just spam it entirely, especially against the bosses, because if you do, you're probably going to miss your opportunity and get countered or they're going to do something that's going to mess up your rhythm and then you're going to be in a, a little bit of trouble. But overall, it is it is probably the most overpowered move in the game and something that you can definitely utilize to uh, combat a lot of the difficulty that you might see, albeit not all of it. Other than those several critiques, this is a near flawless experience. It is so good that my six-year-old daughter turned to me while we were playing. She was the person I played multiplayer through the game. She turned to me and she said, you know, I don't usually like games where you fight people, but for some reason, I really like this one. If that doesn't say it all, Street, I mean, I don't know what, what would. Streets of Rage 2, just, just phenomenal experience. So, overall, what do we think? Is this a Pantheon-worthy game? Uh, yeah, yes. I, this belongs in the Pantheon of Classic Gaming, and it is not even close. If you haven't played Streets of Rage 2, you're doing yourself a disservice. If you think it's not worth it because you've played other beat-em-ups and they're not your cup of tea, let me dissuade you of that notion. It is so good that even people who don't like beat-em-ups should play it. It is a nearly perfect distillation of everything good in the beat-em-up genre, and it is truly the quintessential beat-em-up experience. From my perspective, it's one of the best games ever made, and it truly warrants inclusion in our pantheon of classic gaming.
That was our episode on Streets of Rage 2. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to let me know how I'm doing, give me some feedback, comments, advice, suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you. There are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT, and I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out if you feel so inclined. I'm definitely interested in hearing what you think. Before we sign off for the week, our next episode is focused on Super Mario Land for the Game Boy system. So if anybody has any particularly fond memories of that title, feel free to write in. I'd love to hear what you're thinking about that one. At the same time, I recognize that you're probably listening to this podcast on any number of podcast aggregation services. If you'd feel so inclined, I would love if you could leave me a review. It's not about bolstering star counts, but it is about trying to make the best possible podcast I can. The only way to do that is to get feedback. It's not about getting a whole ton of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome. That hopefully means that we're doing something right. But I really do want to make sure that we continue to make the best possible podcast we can. And I would love to hear feedback from all of you to make sure that we are hitting the mark. We will be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Super Mario Land. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>